Let's say you have your Hebrew Bible in front of you, you open Exodus 20, what do you see? You see a text looking like that, lots of things inside. You can clearly see that this one has no vowels, no dots. Ah, huh? no dots. Welcome to episode number two of the Bible in Obrey on this first day of October, the eighth month, that is actually the tenth month in our calendar, in the year 2019, if you're willing to believe it. Today, I'm going to be going through some of the bare bones basics of Obrey as far as its alphabet, for lack of a better term. How about its glyph set? Alphabet has sort of, uh, like many of our other words, alphabet has implications that I'm trying to get away from. In fact, for anybody who has read the pronunciation document that I have at obreproject.info, remember when you punch that in, do not use a C, use a K. Now, there's nothing uh, occult about that at all. It's just that, well, one thing you'll find is that in, in English or Germanic, the C is redundant. So the, the K is in there as just one of those moves from the current language that we have, languages that we have, which are, are all by fiat, to a, a better language, a m more pure language that we'll all be able to understand a language as in the words of the prophet Zephaniah from chapter 3, verse 9. For then will I, Yahweh speaking, turn the people a pure language that they may all call upon the name of Yahweh to serve him with one consent. In addition today, I'm going to be sharing some various theories with you. That is going to be an on-running theme throughout all of these episodes. Theories. A great deal of this, of course, is theoretical. I don't have this nailed down nor figured out. Uh, if I did, I would already have some sort of text on it. So part of the, the whole point of, of what I'm doing here is to give to you as much as I possibly can concerning what understanding, what working knowledge I have of Obrey, what tools I use, how I use them, what impressions I'm getting, what understandings that I've acquired by interpreting the language of the Bible in Obrey, as I believe it was always meant to be, in, instead of the, the distorted mutated form that we see it in today with what's called a, a Hebrew block letter and with these dots and, and dashes system, the Masorah, the dots and dashes called the Nikudot. Interestingly enough, the root of that Masorah, the Masa, Masas, actually means to bond or to bind 
to put chains upon, to enslave. And I believe that's precisely the purpose that they had, was to bind and enslave the language and the very people that were meant to hear the words so that we could perform them. Okay, so the Obri alphabet, or glyph set, it consists of the same amount of characters as the Hebrew alphabet and the Aramaic alphabet, or glyph set. It is, of course, four characters shy of the modern English and Germanic alphabets, if you don't count the four umlauts and the etset, which are pretty much uh, mostly just diphthongs and what they say is a double S sound, which to me is kind of redundant and actually looks sort of like the so-called shin on its side. It is two characters shy of the Greek alphabet, which I'm fine with calling the Greek set an alphabet, since that's where it derived from. And we're going to do some comparisons. Now, with Hebrew, as we know Hebrew today, what they've done is they have assigned a name and thus a, a concrete image or, or thing to each one of their letters if you want to view the language through the eyes of the Masoretic rabbis. So, for instance, the first letter, uh, because in Hebrew they, they're letters, in Obri they are glyphs, uh, they're ideographs or ideograms. But in Hebrew, the first letter is called Aleph, and it looks just like our English Germanic A, except upside down. One thing you're going to find is a, a standard phenomenon, is that these characters or glyphs have been rotated either a quarter or a half in, in, in many instances. When they're put back in their, their proper orientation, uh, the, the extent to which they mirror English Germanic alphabet or letters is uncanny. So in Hebrew, the, the second letter they call Beit and they say it's a house. Uh, I'm sorry, the first one they call Alep and they say that it is a bull. The third one they call Gimel and they say that it's uh, a camel. They say Gamal is camel. And at some point I'll be challenging that as well. And then the fourth is Dalit, they call it uh, the fifth he, and so on and so forth. Now, even though English has, English and Germanic, uh, English and Germanic have alphabets that mirror each other, since English was based on Germanic. Even though we, we have the four extras in English Germanic, you'll find that there are uh, a number of redundancies in Anglo-Germanic. The few letters that there are in Obery that don't have an English-Germanic equivalent, like, and I'm going to use their, their Hebrew name since more people are familiar with that than what they more than likely should be called in Obery. Characters like the Tet, the Tzadi, and the Shin. Those would be the three characters that we don't really have 
an equivalent in, in Anglo-Germanic just because we don't have the letters that have those compound sounds uh, or vocalizations to them. However, we can, we can make them with any English-Germanic letters, uh, with the, the tet, as they call it in Hebrew. It's actually very close to uh, nearly the equivalent of the theta in Greek, and it's going to have a th sound. So obviously, we have many words that have the th sound in English. The so-called tsadi has a ts sound, and there are many words in English Germanic that would have that sound to it. Oftentimes, that gets replaced with an s or a z, or sometimes an x, depending on where the x is in the word, if it's at the beginning or the end. And then, of course, the shin is just an sh sound. So besides for those, if you take away a lot of the redundance in English Germanic, you have an alphabet that is extremely close to what you have in Obery. Let me go through the 22 glyphs and pronounce them out in Obery. And for anyone who's familiar with the German alphabet, which as I said, it's got the same letters and structures as English, the thing is, in German, they're not named the same as in English, though it's quite close. For instance, in German, the first few letters would be A, B, N, C. Uh, some people will say B instead of B. The thing is, if you're learning German, you might be taught it either way. However, instead of A, B, C, we just have A, B, C, and then D, E, instead of D, E. What they're doing is, the name of the letter is the, the sound it makes, the vocalization. So, this is the same way that we approach Obery. So, in order, the letters will be, and just so everybody knows, you can, either the documents that are the, uh, the Strong's List in Obery, or the Obery pronunciation document, at obreyproject.info on the resources page. So you'll see the glyph set for, uh, you'll see the glyph set on either document. And then you can follow along with it. Uh, for anybody who wants to get into deep study, you want to start testing the words and doing word searches, root searches, comparing them against uh, Hebrew, just send an email to uh, obreyproject.info on the contact page is the email. Actually, I think the email's at the bottom of every page. Send me an email. I will send you my current working copy of the, uh, the Strong's Obrey word list in it's, uh, it's a LibreOffice writer document. If all you have is, say, Microsoft Office Word, it will open in that, and you can edit it in that. Actually, uh, LibreOffice is very friendly as far as the exchange uh, between it and the uh, Microsoft Office programs, except it's, it's open source and it's free, and they don't screw you every few years by having to upgrade once again like Office does. Send me an email. 
and I will send you that. I will send you the uh, the true type font that I created for Obri so that you can work in that. On the Strong's Obri document, the keys that you have to use on your typewriter to key in Obri correctly, they're on there in the beginning chart, and they're not very difficult. It actually, just those few glyphs that I had mentioned that are different than English Germanic, those are the only ones that are different on your keyboard. It's not very difficult to get used to. You send me an email, I can send you those documents so you can start using them. I highly recommend that you get eSword. eSword is one of the, it's one of the, the most versatile, most amendable Bible softwares that I know of. Please use eSword if you're studying seriously. And use other resources like QBible.com. It, it has a Hebrew version, which so you'll see the Hebrew on the right. Unfortunately, they'll give you the Masoretic pronunciation of all the words in that passage in the middle. And then, uh, or on the left is the Hebrew. And on the right is essentially King James vernacular with certain Hebrew words, mostly names and uh, certain proper nouns, are going to be displayed within the text. So it's, it's actually going to help get anybody who wants to become familiar with the language more familiar with it uh, in that way. The other thing you have to remember is Obri is not written from right to left, which is totally backwards. It is written from left to right, just as all of the white Germanic Northern European languages are. I believe that that is the third way, besides for changing the character itself and adding the uh, nikudot, which changed the pronunciation, claiming there were no vowels, and thus putting in the nikudot, changing the pronunciation, which that is a big part of the way to hide everything. And one of the best ways to illustrate that is in the paper that I wrote, The Land of Amory. I never would have caught on to that, the idea of Amory, if I had not been reading this in Obri instead of Hebrew. Whenever we read English translations of the Bible from the Masoretic text, every time we see this people, they're always translated as Amorite, A-M-M-O-R-I-T-E, instead of A-M-E-R-E, Amory, like they were originally written and pronounced. And it was all the references, the general references to Amory, that seem to not make sense unless you understand that the land at large was called, at least from the time of Abraham, the land of Amory. And the people in general were often called Amory, even if they were uh, Palestine or Philistines or uh, Hui or whatever. So it is through reading in Obri that I even caught on to that. And once I caught on to that, I could uh, check all the references and begin to formulate that paper the land of Amory, which uh, every day, every day, I, I get something more from studying in Obri than Hebrew. So <clears throat> let's go here. The Obri glyph set. 
Starting at the front, of course, we have ah. Now that looks like our A, except at pretty much turned 180 degrees, so almost upside down. Ah. The next one, be. It in Obri looks quite a bit like our B. You could see how it is very much like our uh, English Germanic B when you consider the lowercase b even more than the uppercase. The third, ge. And again, when you look at that in its proper orientation, you can see how much it looks like our G today. Then, de. It's very obvious how much this looks like our D. Eh. Very much like the E, except rotated 90 degrees counterclockwise. Now, the next is U. The interesting thing about U is, yes, it very much sounds like our U, our W. The way that you're going to see it in Hebrew, of course, it doesn't look anything like that because it looks pretty much like a stem with just a little something on the upper uh, left of the stem. In Obri, every representation I've seen of it, as, as old as I can go, it basically looks like a U with a longer stem than the U usually has. Now, that makes a lot of sense when you understand that even though there was a breaking up of the languages of Ham, Shem, and Japheth in the very early days, and then the people dispersed <coughs> with, with certain families retaining certain languages, they all, have, they all have certain similar features to them. It's very interesting that Greek, the upsilon, the uppercase upsilon looks like our uppercase Y, and the lowercase looks like a U. And what's so similar is that that, that, that look, the vocalization of it, is sort of represented both in, in German in the ypsilon and in English in the U. So there, there has been some strange blending uh, over the years, and... I have to believe that there is a certain deliberate intent in a lot of this blending. So, character number six is U. Number seven, Z, and that, of course, is the Z. Eight is Ha, H. Nine is Tha, so very much like a Theta in Koine Greek or Greek. The next is E. Just like in German, you have the E as E, and the I as E. The next is Ka, so like K. Then L, which is obvious, M, N. Now, those three look very much like they do in German English today. The next is S. Now, S does not look as much like it does today when you see it in Obery. In, in Obery, it looks almost like uh, a telephone line. It's got a vertical line with a few horizontal lines to it. Now, if you consider that if you connected those three horizontal lines, uh, the first two at the left, and then, you know, the middle and bottom at the right, and you took out the middle line, you would have an S. If you left in the middle line, you'd have a dollar sign. The next character, O, and that's obvious, and it looks just like it. Now, in Hebrew, what that looks like is sort of a lowercase y. 
instead of the O as it should. But again, if you go far enough back, and some people call it Paleo-Hebrew, if you go far enough back, you'll see these characters represented in exactly this way, as I'm saying. O looks just like our English-German O today. The next is Pe, very much like the P today. The next is Tsa. Now, this is one of those uh, characters or glyphs that has the compound vocalization to it, Tsa. It's oftentimes replaced in transliterations with an S, a Z, or as I said, an X, depending on where it falls in the word. The next is Ku, and it looks very much like and vocalizes like our Q. Then Er, then Sha, then Ta. Very much like our R and T with, again, that sha is that compound vocalization glyph. So the whole set, all 22 glyphs then, would be A, B, G, D, E, U, Z, Ha, Tha, I, Ka, L, M, N, S, O, Pe, Tsa, Ku. Er, Sha, Ta. Now, if you should notice some contradictions between some of the things that I'm saying now and any of the documents that you find at the Obrey Project site, please be aware that, again, I learn things daily. My knowledge is always being updated and refined, and so much of this is still theoretical. In fact, it was never my intention to take this on by myself. I always assumed that there would be at least some willing to, to test this language, to begin to understand it outside of the Masoretic. Now, some have thought in the past that I wasn't familiar with uh, a great deal of people and books out there that seem to portray themselves as trying to understand the language apart from what the Masoretics did, but they in fact aren't. They're, they're just repeating the same concepts that the Masoretics have sold to us, just in a different package. So I know it seems like some people have attempted to do that or are doing that today, but believe me, I have looked high and low in any book that I can find for as far back as I can find books, which is usually no further than four or five hundred years when I get lucky, or in various sites and institutions today who claim to be doing things. like. And we're going to get into a document that one of these institutions has produced. I don't know if we'll get to it this time or not. Uh, the This institution is the Ancient Hebrew Research Institute, or center, I'm not sure which it is. But they have produced a lexicon that I might ha may use this time to illustrate some of the problems. And they basically have the same problems that... If you try to apply the, uh, the names that the Masoretic rabbis gave to the characters, if you try to apply those things, like just say, um, 
All right, so they say that the uh, ge is uh, a gimel or camel, and well, let's let's get a good one here. Yeah, all right, and then they claim that uh, the e is uh, yad or hand, and that uh, the a is an aleph or bull. But if you put those three together, uh, a camel, a hand, and a bull. Gia, that does not explain the geographical feature that they often translate as valley, but in fact, I believe we're looking at a cliff. Uh, whether a cliff or gorge, whether you're looking at it from the ground up or, or down, either which way, it is a, a rocky geographical outcropping that extends typically uh, at a true vertical up from the ground on which you stand. Now a camel and a hand and an ox or bull don't cut it. We have to figure out another way to look at this language. Or we're going to have to throw our hands up and say, well, we're, we're just going to have to trust what the rabbis gave us. It's going to have to be one or the other. And that's why I encourage everybody, if you get an inkling or a desire to understand what the Bible really says, grab whatever resources I have right now and start studying on your own. Do what, what you can. Give to this community of people who really want to know and understand what the Bible says. Give back. Don't just come here and take you know, I, li I listened uh, frequently to Radio Free Northwest. So that's the Northwest Front for anybody who's familiar with it. And I, I disagree with some of the things they say, but, you know, one of the things that they say that I agree with is a principle that they have. That they say the people that come there, a lot of the people that either listen a lot to Radio Free Northwest or get a hold of the Northwest Front are doing it with a mentality of what can they get out of that movement as opposed to what could they do for it. And, you know, they tend to not, they say they don't really have time for the people who are doing that, just trying to get for themselves. And I have to applaud that, that particular principle. Um, this is this is not an odd thing to to think or apply. Uh, many people have done it. When it comes to something important, something that you know, I'm not selling this. People help out financially when they can. They help out with doing work when and as they can. But I'm not selling this. It was never my intention to sell this. You know, so just. Look at it that way. If there's anything that you can do as far as putting study into this, putting your own mind into it prayerfully and diligently, please do that. Or in any way that you can just do for what I'm trying to accomplish here. And there are other people that I work with, whether it be in, in research or just doing language work. And I have since the start. So I guess uh, ask Ask not what Obrey Project can do for you. Instead, ask what you can do for Obrey Project. Think of it like that.
Now here is the complication and potential strength of Obri. And Obri is not something that I made up. It's, it's literally just the pronunciation of what this language or things pertaining to it would be if you just take away the Masoretic. Okay. So that potential strength but complication to it is the fact that what we're looking at here, we're not looking at letters, which as they tell us, letters don't have any inherent meaning to them. They're simply meaningless, benign, cold components that are put together to form words. Those words, uh, they tell us what they mean and how we can use them. That's a letter. These are not letters. These are glyphs. They're ideograms, ideograms, from every old language that I am familiar with, that I've looked at, I have every reason to theorize that these can be nothing other than intelligent, meaningful symbols. They're symbols. And of course, this is also why I have to theorize that there is a built-in safeguard to them. You see, if these words and these phrases, and thus these books, are made up of symbols instead of cold, meaningless letters, it safeguards them in the sense that you can't fool much with something that has specific meaning designed into the glyphs themselves. However, the hard part of this is determining precisely what the glyphs stand for. Not just in the sense of, do they stand for something concrete? Uh, like, for instance, they've named the Ah, Aleph, and they say it stands for an ox or bull. However, as I just illustrated, that is so limiting, and you end up with confusion when you try to apply that to more than just a few words. You see, that's the sleight of hand that's used by, for instance, the ancient Hebrew research center. They can apply those concrete meanings that they're retaining from the Masoretic. They can apply those to a few words and then they can use a bit of casuistry to show you how it works. But when you look at the hundreds of words that start with the ah, when you look at the thousands of words that have ah within them, and you try to apply ox in all those cases, you're going to find yourself with a serious migraine. So the thing is, you can tell that they are, they're relaying something. However, if it is too concrete, as I just said, it is very limiting. However, if it is too abstract, the problem is you can go way too far and, and get way too ridiculous. If it's too abstract, anybody can come along and apply just about any sort of meaning they want to it until they get it where they want it. So there has to be some way, some system, of determining is there a concrete, uh, definite meaning implied, and if so, is there an abstract 
or abstracts, plural, how many and what exactly are they implying as far as denotate, uh, to denote and to connotate? And what is the extent of each? Now, I had just completed a word study on the two glyph root o and er, or or, and all of the three character words, and sometimes four and five character, but I try to stay away from those when I'm trying to do a study on a two glyph root word. I just completed that, and one thing that I realized after doing that and comparing the meanings, checking the forms of all of these to make sure that they're the correct form, because one thing you're going to find out about Strong's, they oftentimes do not represent the correct form of these words, and thus it's, it deceives. It's very deceptive in that way. You have to check within the text. This is one of the reasons why I am writing the full extent of the 39 books that we currently use uh, in the Old Testament, and I'm, I will likely include Esther in there, but don't hold your breath. However, I am writing these out, and one of the reasons for that is because that is a really great way of checking. Now, I keep Hebrew versions uh, of the Old Testament, the Masoretic, in Esword, so I can do checks like that, and that's something else that I recommend you do. Esword is very good for that because if you should be using the uh, the coded uh, King James, it's so it's the King James with Strong's numbers to the upper. It, it's like a, a, an upper subtext, so you can do complete searches of that word as it's coded into Strong's within that book of the Bible or the complete Old Testament. You can also do that with versions of. Uh, there are Hebrew modules that you can get for eSword. There is a site at somethingdownloads.com. Let me check that site real quick for you. Okay, so it's called biblesupport.com. That's where you can get all of these modules. You can get various dictionaries, various lexicons, various concordances. That's, in fact, that's where I got the AHLB which stands for the Ancient Hebrew Lexicon of the Bible. That is produced by the Ancient Hebrew Research Center. I highly recommend getting these things and using them at least to, to do a word study and do an in-depth word study. If you are looking at a particular word and you get the Strong's Code of it, oh, I don't know, let's just say, go back here, sure, um, osh. Take that, because that's that's where I'm at. I'm I'm on <clears throat> Strong's number H six two one one Osh, which they of course pronounce Ash. Now, if I wanted to do a study on that, because you look at the definitions here in Strong's, and the definitions is one moth or two herbage or grass. Now, those are two very different things. The one thing we want to do is make sure that they're not deviating from the form of that. So I can see the first usage of it is in Job 4.19. So if I open up my eSword and I keep it on HSB3, so that is the Hebrew Study Bible, and it comes in 
you can get it in one, two, three, four, about four or five modules. And the difference in them is that the first one is actually going to give you, after each Hebrew word, it's going to give you the King James translation word, and it's going to give you the Strong's number. Actually, it's going to give you, I'm sorry, the Hebrew, the, the King James translation word or words, how they say that you're supposed to pronounce it in Hebrew, and the number. That's for every single word. Now, you use the HSB2. It's going to give you the Hebrew word, the King James translated word or words, and then the Strong's number, which you can right-click on whenever you see that Strong's number in any of these modules or translations. You can right-click on it, and it will give you Quick Search as an option. And you can choose either entire Bible, Old Testament, New Testament, or that particular book that you're in. HSB 3 will give you the Hebrew and the Strong's number. HSB 4 is going to give you just the Hebrew with the Masoretic Nicodote. And let's see. HSB 5 is very similar to 1. It's going to give you the Hebrew. It's going to give you the King James word or words translated from it. It's going to give you the Hebrew pronunciation that they dictate. But it's not going to give you the Strong's numbers. It's very easy to remove any particular modules that you might get that you don't want. Uh, eSword comes with a really comprehensive manual. So with either KJV Plus or HSB5, you can do that. So one of the most useful modules is HSB3. That's the one that has the Hebrew word itself with the Strong's number on it. And the word that I had looked up that I wanted to do a quick word study on was that H6211 Osh. First appearance, Job 419. So I'll open up my eSword in HSB3 as the module. Go to the book of Job, select chapter 4. Then I'm going to scroll down to verse 19. And I am going to find that word. Here it is, Osh. Now it is retaining that very form. But what I can do is right-click on the number for Osh and then select Search, and I'm going to do the full Old Testament, so-called. And I can see that what's going to happen is it's going to have highlighted in yellow the number uh, in each one of these verses. And then right before that highlighted yellow box with the number, right before it is that word that you're looking at. So in the first instance, it's Osh. Second, Osh. Third, it's Ka-Osh. So that K at the front is going to be like or as, Ka-Osh. And then again, Ka-Osh. And then Osh, Osh, Be-Oshab. Now that's different. Oshab is like bushes or various plant flora that would grow from the ground. So, that's not correct if they're selling us osh as a certain word. In, in that case, yeah, grass, what, what, what was the second definition they gave us? Herbage or grass? In that case, sure, that would be right. And then again, we see u oshaba, 
that would fall more into the category of the herbage or grass. And in fact, that is a completely different word altogether. In fact, if you were using the Strong's Obery list that I have, it's very, very simple because you can either do a control F search if you're using it as a PDF or if you should email me and I can email you the the copy that I use in LibreOffice, which you can also use in Microsoft Office, there is in LibreOffice in the lower left-hand corner, there's a little window in which you can do a search and you can find words really, really easy. If, you know, let's say that you have a, you just have the idea that, well, maybe I want to look for this root within other words. This makes it easy for you to search all of the Hebrew words at once. Now, the Aramaic portions of the Bible, which you're going to find in uh, Daniel and Ezra, and was there a letter or two in Nehemiah that was also in, in Aramaic or Aramaic? There may have been. Those are not going to be in here because I have not compiled the Aramaic or Aramaic list. Anyways, if you just put the Oshab in, you'll see that it's Strong 6212. And it is an entirely different listing. Now, I'm at 6211 right now. So I can just go up to 6212 and see that Oshab, instead of Osh, is herb, herbage, grass, green plants. And it has about 33 entries. So it is quasi-trustworthy. The... the the thing about changing words is if they're in a certain class of words, it makes it very easy to change them. So there's about, there's about four or five words that can be used sort of interchangeably for the outdoors or the wilderness. So if you should very subtly apply desert to those words, whenever it works best, to convince the reader that this is happening in the Middle East. You can do that because you're keeping within a certain classification of words. That doesn't mean that the meaning of that word is desert. And in fact, they will use uh, different words that are sometimes just uh, translated as wilderness. Words like uh, Midbar or Oribe or Eeyore. And whenever they feel like it, they will put desert in there. Say that it's desert. That's why sometimes when you open up uh, Strong's entry, you'll have six, seven, a dozen or more variations of that word, which is ridiculous. Anybody who has a brain and realizes that words mean things knows that a word cannot mean as many different things as they sometimes try to tell us that one word can mean. So if I continue to look through the entries, I get into Daniel 4.32, and there it's Osheba. Again, as far as I'm concerned, that does not qualify. The, the best it could be is Osh and Ba, two, two glyph roots put back to back. You'll see that happen. You'll see that happen with words like Palgash. Two, two glyph roots put back to back. So again, then we have uh, U'osheba. So 
what you can do is you can toggle back and forth all but the first few entries that I saw have been some form of Osheb instead of Osh. You can toggle back and forth with uh, what I have is I've got the Strong's entry opened up in Blue Letter Bible. It's pretty easy to use. Is it as comprehensive as the Strong's that you'll get in, say, Bible Hub? Not in the same ways, but they all have their own particular uses. I'll also use the Strong's list in, in eSword itself. It has a module that's called KJC, and it is it kind of stands for King James Concordance, but if you open that tab up and you pick any entry, like we were just on, I gotta check, 6211. So if I go back here to the eSword, and I go into KJC, and I select H6211. Oh, and I got to change tabs because I was in the AHLB. So as soon as it changes tabs, which by the way, some of these delays are because I'm still on the, the old faithful laptop, which has lasted forever, uh, but unfortunately it, it really doesn't run that great, and I have to use an off-board keyboard because the, the keyboard has serious problems that, that couldn't be fixed, and so on and so forth. That problem is going to be fixed very soon because I was absolutely fortunate enough to have another computer uh, that's, that's going to be here very soon, and I'm going to be using that. It should really improve a lot about what I'm able to do. So if I'm in KJC and I hit H6211, that is actually going to tell me how many occurrences, 12, and then it's going to give me the word and how many times it appears as that word. It says moth seven times and grass five times. Now, depending on what module I'm in up at the top, right now I'm in HSB3 still, right? So if I just float over those entries, it's going to show me the full verse in the Hebrew Study Bible 3. Now if I want, I can just click over to KJV float over them and it's going to show it in KJV plus. The KJV plus has the strong numbers for every single word in there. So you're really going to be able to test words for their veracity. Are they keeping to form? You're going to be able to test them in this way. This is going to be one of the ways that we're going to be able to completely revamp how everybody understands the concordance and as we get to a point to where we can really understand the glyphs and what exactly they mean as far as how concrete they are and what abstract variants are allowable, I suppose, within them, we're going to get to a point to where <clears throat> concordances and lexicons as we understand them today, I hope, will become obsolete. So one thing that is going to accomplish what I'm talking about is testing. These words have to be tested. Now, I started this a couple of years ago. And uh, I guess in retrospect, I guess in retrospect, if I hadn't been so in need of others to start studying this on their own, and making contributions to help my own understanding 
Because there's there's so much I don't understand. I probably could have continued to just do my testing on my own for years, maybe. Because I'm not sure how much it's going to take. I'm not sure how many minds it's going to take. But I don't think I was ever meant to accomplish such a thing as this on my own. It's going to take testing. Now, these are things that I've already started. For instance, listing all of the obvious two-glyph roots. Now, that's one thing. And one of the exercises that has to be done is all of them have to be gone through uh, to see if, like I just demonstrated, if you can even find them in the text. A good example of this that occurred to me immediately after making that list was that... Uh, in Strong's, it's actually Strong's H3. They list the word ab. And this word ab is spelt the same and displayed the same in Strong's as the word ab for, for father, which is translated as father. This has two entries if you go to ab H3. And it has one definition, which is freshness, fresh green, green shoots, or greenery. Well, you take a look, and it only has two entries, Job 8.12 and Song of Songs, or Song of Solomon 6.11. Now, I can tell you, based on my experience, one of the, probably one of the worst translated books in the early testament is Job because in Job, there is such a great deal of vocabulary. These men were, they had a marvelous vocabulary. And this book was written by one very intelligent author. And so, so many, so many passages are so poorly translated. Song of Songs is a really great book. It has some, some very interesting passages that actually help to give you insight on the land and the flora and the fauna and a number of particulars. And that may be the greatest usage of Song of Songs or Song of Solomon. But if I open up my eSword, let's say, and I'm in the KJC module in Dictionaries, and I click on that H3, and I get myself in the HSB, the Hebrew Study Bible 3, in Bibles up top, and I just scroll over the entry in Song, which is Song of Songs 611, and I find H3. I can see that it is Ab-E. It's not just Ab. It's what's possibly the prefix B, which is typically in, by, with, and perhaps the suffix Ich, 
which depending on the kind of word can either mean of its root word it can it can be a plural depending on the word it's attached to and what follows its context it can imply ownership so you've probably heard the hebrew word adonai which should be adani meaning my master or my lord which adun actually is a word basically meaning full of greatness adun adani so that ich at the end could mean a number of things it could be part of a root even in fact most of the time that you'll see ab being translated as father it's going to have that e at the end there's very few times you're going to see ab without that e because typically it's going to be expressed as father of there's a good reason for that now if i check the job 8 11 and 12 i'm looking for the first h3 which i'm not seeing in 11 but it is in 12 and it is presented as ba'abu so in neither one of those passages is it presented as ab the point to this is because the only two entries of it it is not it's it is not occurring as its naked root just ab it is occurring with other glyphs that could be prefix prefixes and suffixes however they could be since we see in both of these occurrences we do have the variant at the end of the e in the first and the u in the second but in both we have the be so it's very possible that this word is not ab at all that this word is in fact bab b or be a be that's how we test words that's why if say you got the most recent concordance i'm working on right now you'll see just a slew of entries because i change these as i go that are going to have an asterisk next to the original word and what i'm going to have is the word as it appears in strongs if there's something about it uh maybe it doesn't appear that way like in the case of strongs h3 ab it only appears as babi or babu i'm going to have an asterisk there and usually some sort of explanation again strongs 184 that is listed as awe a u e awe i have an asterisk next to it with a note should not be listed impossible to justify it as its one occurrence so there's various notes oftentimes you'll see notes that say that it should be grouped with another word which honestly the more that i do word studies on two glyph roots the more that i see that there are large families now these families if we can start determining the families of roots 
that's going to get us a long way down that road to determining what the individual glyphs mean, how they relate to one another, and how they're used to communicate. Because look at it this way. If these theories are correct, some of the theories I have, if they are in fact correct, you have to undergird them with an understanding like this. Look at the creation. Look at how amazingly complex the creation is. At the cellular level, at the macro level, it's size compared with our own. The size of a cell compared to our own. The complexity on the macro and the micro level. The sheer number of species. The amount of things we don't even know about. They're discovering new insects, new fish, new animals, new mammals, new elements, new minerals, all the time. And the list is gigantic as it is. Consider the creation. And then consider that that creator selected a language that he would present at least the greater portion of his scriptures within. And I think really all of it. Because, of course, I also theorize that the New Testament was originally written in Obery. There, there are strong reasons that I have for having these theories. I don't just formulate theories by, by sitting and, and daydreaming these things up. They are from the text itself. But we know at least the greater portion, one continuous, unchanging language throughout that greater portion. That greater portion spanning far over a thousand years without change. Now, the same creator who made this amazing creation that we experience is the same one who decided on this particular language that it should be used for at least the greater portion of the scriptures that he would preserve for us today. When you look at it in that way, I hope that you begin to understand the potential for complexity and intelligence in the language. And as I was beginning to say, in the individual glyphs even, and as I was beginning to say a bit earlier, during the last, uh, during the last word study, or root, actually root study I was doing, one thing occurred to me as I was looking at these various provable and unprovable definitions given is that it is possible 
if everything has to be provable from within because we have a document in which a language is used so since the only lexicons and concordances and dictionaries that we have were all devised by men in most cases men that I don't advise you trusting if we have to rely entirely upon internal evidence what's to say that the way that these glyphs work how concrete they are what exactly they stand for how abstract they can be they're allowed to be and how they can work together what's to say that the understanding definition of the smallest part is not to be found in the greater parts now what I mean by that is for instance a word like Adam Adam's referring to us not just male not just bipeds Adam it's referring to man and it could be because there are a certain amount of words that until we're able to appropriately translate them we don't know if Adam is referring to every biped that they call humans today or if it's referring to a very specific type however Adam appears many times and there are a number of passages that have Adam in them in which Adam is defined so who's to say that the understanding of the individual parts the a the de and the m is not to be had within those very passages that define and describe Adam and this may work with many of the words what we really want to do is get this down again to these two glyph roots and there's different ways that you have to approach this to determine what is the root Adam Adam's a good example because <clears throat> Adam has let's see one two three four five six seven eight nine ten eleven we'll say twelve thirteen fourteen fifteen sixteen seventeen eighteen it has at least eighteen variables within that root Adam that three uh, three glyph or three character root now there is a word in scripture that is 
ad, a and de, and there is a word in scripture that is dam, de and m. The ad only appears about twice, and it's translated as Mr. Vapor, and dam appears uh, a number of times, and it's actually blood. Um, the the ad is a little bit more abstract, harder to prove, but you'll find that um, it's close. It may not actually mean Mr. Vapor, but something about it's actually kind of close. Now, the dam is much easier to prove as it being blood. The thing is, if you, let's say that you listen to people that are CI, they'll tell you that Adam means to be able to blush. Well, they're taking that from certain definitions, from certain dictionaries, what they're going to have to do to prove that to me, that that's the definition of Adam, to prove that to me, they're going to have to get in there, they're going to have to determine whether it's rooted in the odd portion or the dem portion. That's part of testing these words and finding these, the two-glyph root families, because these all of these glyphs are so, they're so useful, they're so variable, that the obvious thing is that the a ah can be used as either a prefix or a suffix, and the m can be used either as a prefix or a suffix. That's obvious. But even in words where it's not as obvious, that maybe begins with an S, where S is never listed by anybody ever as a prefix or a suffix. However, that's not to say that it cannot be added on to a simple two-glyph root to make a new word. And we always have to determine what family that word is in to understand how the word's to be used I'll give you I'll give you a really good example of the reason that's important and 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 how things can be sidetracked how even without the the meddling of the Masoretes uh, these things can get these things can get confusing and these determinations need to be made all right Take an entry like H6174. Uh, it's going to be listed as Orum. So that is O-R-U-M. Now, when you check all of the occurrences of it in ESORD, you'll see that it appears either as O-R-U-M, Orum, or sometimes as O-R-M, just Orum. In the first instance, H6174, which occurs 16 times, the definition is naked. The second, let's say 6175, right after that, which has 11 occurrences, crafty or subtle. Now, when you check 6174, the very first occurrence of it in Scripture is in Genesis 2.25, and they were both naked. In fact, it's going to be entered as Orum 
with the ooh in there, orumim. They were both naked, the man and his woman. That goes on to say, eh, adam, u ashitu, his woman. And la, and, and in the last word they use is a shame, but I think it means um, cowering. They were not cowering. Anyways, so that's the first occurrence of the H6174. Now, H6175, which is also, it's the very same word, it's spelled in the same way. You're going to see that it could be prudent, crafty, or subtle. <laughs> What's really interesting about it is, its first occurrence is in Genesis 3.1. Now, the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field. O, er, u, m. Just like in the previous chapter, Adam and Eve were o, er, u, m. In the case of 6174, naked. In the case of 6175, crafty or subtle. Now, I don't deny <clears throat> that a language, especially a language that is maybe complicated is the best word, maybe it's not, complex. A language that is complex, that can express essentially any idea under the sun that is expressible, could possibly have homonyms, obviously, synonyms, antonyms, right? Could. I'm not saying yet that it does. But here we come to a potential big crux in the issue of getting from Masoretic Hebrew, as it's been presented to us today, to the pure Obri as it was meant to be understood. And that is mindset. It is a mindset that even if English isn't your first language, which it is with me, even if you speak a few different languages that are extant and used in the world today, there is still a problem that has to be dealt with because this very thing has been done to, to one degree or another to about every language that is being used today. But furthermore, I suggest that this is something that is the basis of what happened with English in the late 1500s and the early 1600s in England. Anybody who has looked into this with an open mind will tell you that based on what they know about Sir Francis Bacon and what they understand about Shakespearean literature and how influential it was and then what they can know and understand about the King James Bible and how known and influential it was. There are those who make a very strong case that Bacon, who was a Rosicrucian, and he was a, I don't know if I'd call him a master, he was a very talented maker of ciphers and codes. He was very talented at this. Bacon and the Baconians, who were Rosicrucians, that they were in fact behind the idea, uh, the person known as Shakespeare, and that they were also the final editors of the King James Version of the Bible, and that through popular culture, 
which is what Shakespeare was at the time because Shakespeare was the television of the time, all of those works were immediately produced as plays and ran as plays through popular culture and religion that they changed the language. And through changing the language, they changed the way, the capacity, and the mode of thought. That that was probably, most likely, the whole reason for inventing the English language from the start. When you look at German and the way that German words are made from the ideas that they are formed from, it is far more pure and allows for a much more precise thought process and communication than English. Remember, English is only about 26 to 28% German, which it was based on. Then the rest of it is basically uh, classical and romance languages with a number of others that just thrown in. You know, it's it's got Greek, it's got Latin, it's got, believe me, it's got some Hebrew and Aramaic. It's got uh, smatterings of Italian, Spanish, French, and of course, the various German and Dutch words. So it's this mishmash of all kinds of words and all kinds of languages and the inception of English, even before it was again changed at the time of Shakespeare and the King James Version of the Bible, the late 1500s, the 1600s, it was again a deviation of German. And then it was a deviation of the established English at that time. And it has deviated again and again and Basically, it has been used to not only deceive us, but to limit our capacity for thought. In fact, it has been used in many instances to darken our thoughts, to limit our understanding, to curtail the beauty, the potential beauty of our imaginations. That is precisely what can be done with language if it's being done by evil people with malicious intent. And anybody who understands anything about the last 500 years of history, and especially English history and then the history inception and up to the current day uh, in America and the Western world would know exactly who those evil malicious minds were. And now, to drive this point home, I'm going to be referencing George Orwell's 1984. At the end of the book, there is the appendix. The appendix explains Newspeak. For anybody who has read 1984, they know what Newspeak was. It was the language that the ruling party of Oceania, Airstrip One, the language that they were forming. They had, had, they had a long-term plan. It was actually supposed to take place over many decades in which they would change the language. See, the old language that they spoke in this world was the language that we speak today, or that Orwell spoke in 1948-49 uh, when he wrote this, which has changed a bit since. But that's basically, that would be the old speak in 1984, 
And the new speak was this extremely limited language that they were bit by bit by bit forming in this new speak dictionary. So let me read you a little bit about it. In the appendix, he says, the principle of new speak. New speak was the official language of Oceania and had been devised to meet the ideological needs of Ingsoc or English socialism. In the year 1984, there was not as yet anyone who used Newspeak as his sole means of communication, either in speech or writing. The leading articles in The Times were written in it, but this was a tour de force, which could only be carried out by a specialist. It was expected that Newspeak would have finally superseded Old Speak, or or standard English, as we should call it, by about the year 2050. So that was quite a long-term plan. That was at least a 70-plus year plan. Meanwhile, it gained ground steadily, all party members tending to use new speak words and grammatical constructions more and more in their everyday speech. The version in use in 1984 and embodied in the 9th and 10th editions of the New Speak Dictionary was a provincial one and contained many superfluous words and archaic formations which were due to be suppressed later. It is with the final perfected version as embodied in the 11th edition of the dictionary that we are concerned here. The purpose of New Speak was not only to provide a medium of expression for the world view and mental habits proper to the devotees of Ingsoc, but to make all other modes of thought impossible. It was intended that when new speak had been adopted once and for all, and old speak forgotten, a heretical thought, that is a thought diverging from the principles of Ingsoc, should be literally unthinkable, at least so far as thought is dependent on words. Its vocabulary was so constructed as to give exact and often very subtle expression to every meaning that a party member could properly wish to express, while excluding all other meanings and also the possibility of arriving at them by indirect methods. This was done partly by the invention of new words, but chiefly by eliminating undesirable words and by stripping such words as remained of unorthodox meanings and so far as possible of all secondary meanings whatever. To give a single example, the word free still existed in Newspeak, but it could only be used in such statements as, quote, this dog is free from lice or this field is free from weeds. It cannot be used in its old sense of politically free or intellectually free, since political and intellectual freedom no longer existed even as concepts and were therefore of necessity nameless. Quite apart from the suppression of definitely heretical words, reduction of vocabulary was regarded as an end in itself, and no word that could be dispensed with was allowed to survive. Newspeak was designed not to extend, but to diminish the range of thought. And this purpose was indirectly assisted by cutting the choice of words 
down to a minimum. Newspeak was founded on the English language as we now know it, though many Newspeak sentences, even when not containing newly created words, would be barely intelligible to an English speaker of our own day. Newspeak words were divided into three distinct classes, known as the A vocabulary, the B vocabulary, also called compound words, and the C vocabulary. It will be simpler to discuss each class separately, but the grammatical peculiarities of the language can be dealt with in the section devoted to the A vocabulary, since the same rules held good for all three categories. So he goes on to define those three categories. It's all very interesting. I recommend reading the whole thing. The A vocabulary were common words. The B vocabulary were basically political words, uh, specifically words that were expedient for ingsoc. And the C vocabulary were scientific technical words, which is very funny. You look at English and the formation of, of, of English, and all of these foreign words that are to us essentially abstract. The problem is English is so full of abstractions. The, the issue with trying to understand the New Testament with the Old Testament is the huge amount of abstracts in the New Testament. There's less in the Old. The problem is in general, okay, if you take Obery, and you translate and transliterate obri into this language they call Koine Greek, which I call Elen. Incidentally, the fifth letter of the obri alphabet is Eh, which the Jews call He. What's so strange about, you know, how I've said before that you're going to see this hidden hand behind all of these languages, because they've been involved in all the translations and transmissions of these languages. The fifth letter in the Greek alphabet is epsilon, E. What's interesting is a great deal of the time when you see the epsilon used, they demand that you pronounce an E in front of it. So when you see something like just the word Greek, whether it be referring to language or if it's referring to uh, the people. You're, it's going to be the word LN. That's going to be the underlying word. But they're going to tell you that you have to pronounce it with an H in front of the epsilon, the eh sound, just like an obri eh. And they changed that in Jew speak to he. We see that same thing in what they call Koine Greek, which I call LN, since that is the most obvious and sensible, consistent way to pronounce it. This is where we get what they call Hellenists from. But I'm going to digress so I can get back to Newspeak. The idea of limiting a language to limit thought and what we can conceive of and how much they can use a language and pop culture and ideas to darken our thoughts, to limit our processes. That's what I believe the crux of the matter is, is we need to get into the headspace of the men who used and wrote down Obrey 
through the inspiration of Yahweh. We need to be in the scriptures, studying them and studying them and studying them. We're not talking about we're not talking about spending a, a great deal of time with just trying to trudge through reading these English translations, which are so oftentimes really bad and aren't conveying to you uh, the, the original content, uh, intent, but we're talking about spending time doing some serious word studies, for instance. Testing words, comparing the so-called Koine Greek, Ellen, to Obri, picking out possible transliterations. There are so many test documents that I have that I'm trying to juggle on top of writing the book on, on geography, how the... Uh, the Bible does not support a Middle Eastern geography. There are so many ways that, that the, the scriptures can be approached and they can be tested. The words can be tested. The grammar can be tested. And the current understanding can be tested. I don't want anybody to get the idea that spending time in the word just means consistently, repetitively reading from translations that are not altogether good. Yes, the body has stayed intact. But as I, I said to somebody the other day in the comments, the devil is in the details. And I would recommend spending a lot of time in the Word testing the, the notions that, that they've fed us. Trying to get your mind, because I've got to do this every day. It's very difficult to be taught to think. You, see, you hear things like thinking outside the box, but that's precisely what we have to do. We've been boxed into, even if, as I said, even if English is not your first language, you have been through your culture since this culture is now, this vomitous, sick culture is now worldwide. You, your thoughts have been boxed in. They have been caged up. We have to get out of that box. We've got to find a way out of that box. And we've got to get our mind into the mind of Obri. Until we do that, and a number of people are committed to doing that, I don't know how many big strides are going to be made. In Obri. We've got to get our minds in there. We've got, we've got to have our minds freed from the cage of not only English and modern languages as they currently are. And they've changed, they've changed all of them to one degree or another. You know, with the limited amount of German that I know, when I look at German documents produced before World War II, they used certain words in ways that were different than how they use them now. They have darkened our minds. They've darkened our thoughts. And when you understand that the use of codes and ciphers, cryptography, is something that is a very old practice, you can understand. And when you see who has made themselves the enemies of the Israelites today, and I mean the white Christians today, you can understand who's doing it, why 
and that no, nothing, not history, not the Bible, not records, not anything, has been immune from their bad touch for who knows how long. So a lot of people are going to have to get on this. Start doing this on your own. Unfortunately, even though I want to, I don't have the time to communicate with everyone who's interested in doing something. You, you, you have to take initiative. I mean, even the people that support me and try to help me, I only have a certain amount of time that I can put into communicating with them if I'm going to get anything done and have the energy to put into my family too. So everybody's going to have to dig in and start understanding these things for themselves and start giving back, making offerings to the truth, to the truth. If you're one of the people that are coming into this and you may not even believe in the Aliyim, the, the God of Scripture, you're, you, but you want to know, what does this book really say? At least give back for the sake of truth, decency, the goodness of your fellow man. If you can't find anything else or any other reason to do this and give back. Because it's going to take a lot of people. I don't think one person can do it. I don't know that it was intended for one person to do it. And maybe that's not a good thing, you know, for one person to come along and, and have a knowledge and an understanding and, and power that could go with it. You know, one person also can be, can be squashed just like one manuscript can be hidden, whereas thousands of manuscripts, thousands, hundreds of thousands of people who have an understanding of something can't be. Do you see why it's imperative for all of you to start getting to understand this? I'll do all I can, and I will keep coming back week after week with this show to share with you everything I possibly can of my understanding of Obri, my theories, why I have them, so that you can weigh them you can use them to, to do your own study and start proving things for yourself and hopefully starting to, to give back in any way you can. No, everybody's not an intellectual. No, not everybody can give in the same way. It's true. But the more, the better. And either which way, as long as your actions are not about what can I get out of this, I think you're on the right road. So with that being said, I hope everybody found this enjoyable, enlightening, and I hope this inspired a number of you to dig in, start testing the language, and seeing where you can go, because I specialize Besides for the language, because the language is not just the end, you know, I also specialize in geography, as I just said. But the impetus of so much of that, of course, was understanding 
all of this through Obery. I'd love to see more people be able to branch out in more ways through their understanding of the Bible in Obery. That is a great desire of mine. If there's anything that that you're looking for as far as tools that you don't see on the um, on the references page of the Obery Project, let me know. Send me an email, and I'll try to get it on there. Any links or sites that I've mentioned that you can use that you don't see on that page. Typically, the links are at the bottom. The documents that I've uh, produced are, are further up on the page, as well as uh, you know, links to video sites and podcast sites and so on and so forth. Let me know, and I will do what I can to change that. But trying to juggle that site on top of the, the research and the writing and then trying to produce these shows and whatnot it is a lot. Uh, it would be great that if at some point there was a trustworthy person who could actually run the site and do those things, you know, of course, that would be very helpful. So all things, I suppose, in time. So until next week. I really do wish all of you a very excellent week and the very best for you and yours. Take care.